Hey, my name is Randall, and uh, thank you for joining us on this national holiday. For most of you didn't know, this is a national holiday. It's, it's actually um, National Youth Pastors Preaching Day. It's an, it is the official, ho- yeah, I know. I've been celebrating it for the past 13 years of my life. Trust me. Uh, the reason I discovered this, I went online and I found my, my buddy Eric Joppa on Facebook, and, and he was doing the same thing last night that I was doing, opening our Bibles, preparing for our messages. Most youth pastors, this is the day that we preach. I've done it for the past 13 years. And, and he had this stream of youth pastors like, like joining in the conversation, right? And, and it was all the same thing, like, yeah, like we celebrated Christmas. We knew we had to, we had to preach like the Sunday following. So we better start prepping. And so we all do the same thing. We all take a, a message that we preached in high school before and we just remove, we remove all the bodily humor jokes. And we just go like, this has got to work. This, this has have to work today for you guys. So, um, but I tell you, I'm, and listen, I don't know how, this, this is how this comes about. It comes about because typically like the senior pastor, like he preaches like the Sunday before Christmas, which is like the big one. And then Christmas Eve. Right. And then he's like, okay, I gotta get somebody to preach for me on the, the Sunday. I, how, I, you think this would have been the year I could have got out of this, right? You think for me, this would be the year that this would be an easy out, but some, this is it. I'm, this is the last time I'm doing this. I'm telling you that. I'm getting out of it next year. Last time I'm up here doing this. So um, here's what we got to do. If you guys have your Bibles, um, I'd love for you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. Somewhere around chapter 20 is where we're going to be. So just kind of stick your thumb in that because we've got some other things to do first. Okay, so Exodus chapter 20. Just put a bookmark in it, stick your thumb in it, whatever, and we'll get back to that. That's how we're going to kind of come back to that to, to kind of wrap up our time together today. Um, but, but while you're doing that, okay, let me just, let me just tell you a few things like right up front. Okay. And, um, I'm going to tell you a few things up front. So, cause if you need to take a nap here today, um, you'll, you'll get the first part of it and you'll wake up and you'll, you'll catch the end. Cause, cause I'm going to tell you right now, I'm going to, I'm going to be a little bit longer. We got one service. Okay. So I'm going to go a little bit longer than normal, but we only have one service today. So are we cool? Can we stack hands on me being a little bit longer? You guys stack hands. Everybody, you're all stacking hands here. You guys got it? Okay. These guys are used to it. So I'm going to go a little bit longer, but I'm going to tell you like what you need to know up front. So if you do take a little snooze, you'll wake up and you'll hear the same thing and you'll think, I didn't miss a thing. I, I got it all. Okay. So here, here's the thing. Here's the bottom line for today. You're not a mistaker who needs a second chance. You're a sinner who needs a savior. Okay? You're not a mistaker who needs a second chance. You're a sinner who needs a savior. Welcome to church. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for um, your word. And I pray as we, as, we, as we dig into it, God, you would reveal yourself through your word to us, to our hearts. Would this fall on us just brand new today? Um, captivate our hearts, capture our affection for you. In your name we pray, amen. So it's a familiar story that we're going to dig in today. Um, uh, you've, you've probably all heard it, right? And, and you might be like, wow, like how many times do we have to hear this? Like I've heard this a lot, right? And so it's a familiar story. And, and you might be going like, well, how many times? But trust me, God's like, how many times do I have to tell them this? Right. And, and you'll, you'll catch this. Right. 
as, as we go on. So what I need to do, if, if for some reason you don't know the story that we're going to get to, I've got to fill you in the backstory because it's going to make a lot more sense. So, so we're going we're gonna, to, let me just kind of catch you up real quick through, through the Genesis story. And I'm going to start with a guy that's pretty important here. We're going to start with this guy named Abraham. And Abraham shows up to, to or God shows up to Abraham, and, and he gives, he gives um, Abraham this promise. He, he delivers these promises to Abraham. He enters into this relationship with Abraham through promise. We call it a covenant. And a part of the promise is that Abraham, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Okay, so that's part of the promise. I'm going to make you this great nation. problem with that is that Abraham had one son, and then he died. Right. And then that son had a son and that son had a son. And then that son had like 12 sons. OK, so the promise starts off a little shaky if you're Abraham. Right. And, but here's the deal. The thing gets rolling. And now all of a sudden it's starting to kind of look like a big family. Right. And, and part of that promise to Abraham is I'm going to make you this great nation that's going to bless the whole world. But then Abraham dies. He has a son and then he dies. But then all of a sudden, a couple of generations later, you get to this big family but maybe not a nation yet. But the interesting thing, through the book of Genesis, Joseph, one of Jacob's son, there's Abraham, there's Isaac, there's Jacob, there's Joseph. Joseph ended up in Egypt, if you know the story, um, and he ended up um, you know, kind of rising to, to fame and, and fortune in, in Egypt. And as a result of being in Egypt, he invites all of his family to Egypt. And so all of Abraham's descendants, they move to Egypt and they had this very favored status while they were in Egypt with Pharaoh. Uh, Joseph got in with Pharaoh, the, the king, because Pharaoh loved Joseph. But as time went by, eventually Joseph dies, and then the Pharaoh that loved Joseph dies. Meanwhile, the descendants of Abraham, they're multiplying like rabbits in Egypt. There's thousands and thousands of them. They're, they're living and, and they're living amongst the Egyptians. And the Bible says that this Pharaoh comes along who basically didn't know Joseph. He, he'd heard the stories, but he had zero relationship with Joseph. So Joseph was just a name in a history book. He was just a name on a, on a tomb somewhere. And as, and as he looked around at what was happening in his own nation, he realized that if, if something doesn't change pretty soon, there's going to be more Hebrews in Egypt than there are Egyptians. And so he made this decision to enslave all of the Hebrews. Well, time goes by, and the Hebrews continue to multiply and multiply, and generations go by. The Bible says for 400 years. Now, now don't rush by that too quickly. Don't let that slip by you. 400 years, the, the Hebrews, the Israelites, were in Egyptian captivity. 400 years. And, and understand this, okay? They knew very little about God. Okay, they, it was, they were stories at that point. This was a promise given to Abraham a long time. We're generations removed. So, so they really didn't know much about this God. In fact, when they referred to their God, they referred to their God as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Essentially, they, they didn't even know his name. Okay? And so for 400 years, it seems as if God, and, and, and let me just pause, let, sink yourself into the story. Don't read our context into the story. 
Okay, as much as you can, try to let yourself be captivated. Imagine yourself as as one of these people for 400 years. Okay, so remove yourself from here and yourself. Don't look back on the story, but try to put yourself in this story. You, you got to kind of wrap your minds around the engineers in the room. I know it's tough. Let's not think about numbers. Let's think about story for a second and let ourselves settle into the story. Because it'll make more sense when you really kind of wrestle through the implications of what it, maybe it would have been and, and been like to, to be one of these people. So for 400 years, you probably would have been thinking, is God just ignoring our prayers? I mean, we're supposedly the people that he chose to bless the entire world. I mean, how embarrassing. We're the, we're the descendants of Abraham. God, God said, I'm going to make you into this great nation. But here we are in captivity for 400 years. I mean, we're a nation, but we're definitely not great. And God has promised Abraham that he's going to use this nation to bless all the families in the world. And, and you would think to yourself, how are you going to bless all the families in the world through us? Look at us right now. We're, we're a nation of slaves. We're an embarrassment to our patriarch, Abraham. And this, this powerful God that supposedly appeared to him so many years ago, He's, he's obviously rejected us. He, he's, he's ignoring us. Or maybe the stories weren't even true to begin with. Because God, where are you? In fact, imagine if, if you're a Hebrew slave. Imagine the kind of conversations that, that you would have had about God. Now keep in mind, there's no Bible. There's no scriptures yet. And, and as we'll see in a bit, they, they didn't even know God's name. It's the God of Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Jacob. That's how they referred to him. And so somebody says to you, do, do you believe in God? You might be tempted to say, I don't, I don't know anymore. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, at least as long as I look around, there's no evidence of God in this life. I'm a slave. My father was a slave. My kids are going to be slaves. We'll die slaves. I mean, there was a promise, but there's just no end in sight to this. Some of them might have been saying, I, I believe in God. But at this point, I think, I think Pharaoh might be God. I mean, obviously, the God Pharaoh, who, who the Egyptians worshipped as God, he must be more powerful than the God we're supposed to believe in. He's clearly more powerful than the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I mean, if not, then our, then our God would have intervened. I mean, our God would have kept his promise. Our God would have delivered us by now. But by the fact that we're still this slave state proves that if there is a God... Well, it must be Pharaoh. Or if there's another God, he, he's certainly not more powerful than Pharaoh. I mean, because just look around and, and look at our story. And that's the exact dilemma that I think a lot of us face sometimes, don't we? We're here on Sunday. We're worshiping God. We pray on Sunday. Nothing's happened by Thursday. And then all of a sudden, we're just sure there's no God. Right? We're like, God, what? We, we ask him for something, we pray for something, and he doesn't give us exactly what we ask for. And so we decide, well, he must not be good. And, and I don't understand this, but for 400 years, I mean, almost twice as long as America has existed, right? For 400 years, God seemingly ignored the cries of his chosen and blessed people, the nation of Israel. That's pretty mind-blowing. Why would God be so deaf to the cries of his people? I could, I could start thinking of a lot of ideas. I could come to some conclusions through the story. But those would probably just 
fail in comparison to the stark reality of those people that had been pleading and and waiting for 400 years. So in the end, I mean, I, I have no idea. I don't know why God was silent for 400 years. Most of the time, I honestly, shockingly, I have no idea why God does what he does. And the temptation is for us to to draw conclusions about God from our circumstances. Think about the the people of Israel here. If they would have just started saying, because of where we're at right now, we're going to draw a picture of, of God based on our circumstances, based on where we're at, based on the things that are happening around us. But they couldn't have been more wrong. They couldn't have been more wrong because all along, God intended and God was planning to be faithful to his promise and to his people. And so time goes by. And finally, even though they were in captivity, the Hebrews continued to to multiply. And finally, Pharaoh said, I've had enough. I've had enough. We've got to put an end to this. And so he passes this law. He says all the newborn, the firstborn Hebrew baby boys, they, they must die immediately following birth. Once they're born, they die. Most historians believe that they just took the boys and and they tossed them in the river. And and just when it looked like things couldn't get worse for this promised people, finally God rolls up his sleeves and and he steps in and he intervenes. A baby is born to this Levite woman and she realizes that if she doesn't act quickly, if she's not on the spot, that, that this baby's days are numbered. So she hides him as long as she can. And then she decides what to do what, what really no mom could ever even dream of doing. She decides that she's going to put her own baby in the river, in this basket, and just, and just send him downstream. And her daughter is watching to, to kind of see what would happen. And, and you know the story, right? You, you've seen the movies. Eventually that basket ended up in the possession of, of Pharaoh's daughter. And she picked up that little baby, and there was this instant affinity that she had towards this baby. And, and she names him Moses, and she takes this baby boy and, and home, and she raised him in, in Pharaoh's household. But, but once again, if I was writing the story, if we were writing the story, we would write it so differently, wouldn't we? It would be, hey, God, they, they need a deliverer. They need a, they need a savior. They, they don't need a baby. They need it now. Why, why is it taking you so long? Why is it when you build a nation, you start with a man that doesn't have any kids? Why is it when, that, that when we need a rescuer, you send a baby? And so this baby is being raised in the home of Pharaoh. Meanwhile, another generation goes by and, and passes and, and more Hebrews die without hope, with, without an answer. And then Moses, he finally comes to age and he realizes, wait a minute, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an Egyptian. I'm not one of them. I'm actually one of these Hebrew slaves. These are my people. And then one day he sees this Egyptian abusing and taking advantage of this Hebrew. And he steps in and, and he kills the Egyptian. And then word gets out and word starts to spread that, that Moses, this, this guy that had been raised in Pharaoh's household, is out killing Egyptians. And so he flees he flees for his life. He runs to the desert. And for 40 more years, 400, and then 40 more years, the people are waiting in slavery, in bondage. Where's our rescuer? Where's our redeemer? 
And, and, it, and it appears that God is just still silent. And another generation of Hebrew slaves die with no hope, with no fulfillment. They don't see the end of the promise. And let's be honest. That's not the kind of God we would have written into the story. I mean, if my main goal was to get people to love God, I would have skipped over this whole part. This is really challenging stuff. This isn't like, this isn't the story that we, that we hear on the flannel board, is it? Like people died waiting without hope. There's a stark reality to this story that sometimes we, we miss. I mean, if my main goal was to paint a picture of a God that was compatible with my way of thinking, my timetable, my schedule, I wouldn't have told this story. And yet the scriptures tell us exactly, this is exactly what happened. And then finally, after 400 years, why? I don't know. The scriptures doesn't exactly tell us. After 400 years, God decides. And here's the part that that I don't have words to to adequately express to you. God decides that at this point in history, really for the first time, see, don't, don't read too much into this story. Think about it like you're in the story. For the first time, God decides to step onto the stage of the world. Thus far, he's, re- he's revealed himself exclusively to, to this family. And, and he didn't even reveal that much about himself to that family to begin with. And, but suddenly, for, for some unknown reason in history, God decides to, to step onto the stage of world events and to make himself known to a nation, to the world so he appears to, to Moses in, in a burning bush, and he says, Moses, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to deliver my people. And Moses and God have this very pointed discussion, this very, like, Moses is like, I, what? I'm not, I, I'm not good at talking. You want me to go do what? I, I, can't, I can't stand in front of a group of people. I, I'm, I probably have, like, this speech impediment, and, and you want me to just go declare to the most powerful person on the face of the earth? What? And this is very interesting. Part of the discussion, he says, okay, I'm in. I'll I'll do it. I don't understand it. I got some questions, God, but I'm your servant, and and I'll go. But but if I go back to Pharaoh, and and I'm like, let my people go, like, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh? Like, who sent me? Like, who should I say sent me? In in other words, God, I, I don't even know your name. I mean, all this time, I've just known you as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And that may not be very helpful in this situation. So, so what's your name? I mean, for over 400 years, we've been praying to a God whose name we don't even know. And, and you want me to go back as your representative in your name? So I, I, got, I just have one simple question. What's your name? Who, who are you? I mean, you have to understand, they knew of God, but they didn't know his name. And God says, well, you tell Pharaoh, you tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. That's not even good grammar. I am sent you? Well, I mean, my, my five-year-old talks better than that. And then God said, I am that I am. And do you know what that meant? It meant Moses, I don't even need a name. I don't even really need a name because I am the one, the only, the true, the living God, the sometimes silent God, but always faithful God. 
I am that I am. So Moses, with that, went back and he got his audience with Pharaoh. And he says to Pharaoh, I am has sent you a message. It was probably terribly confusing to Pharaoh at first. And he says, he says to you, O Pharaoh, who, who, who assumes to be God, Pharaoh, who you assume that you are the most powerful thing in all of the world, I am says to you, let my people go. Pharaoh laughed and the people mourned and God smiled. Because he knew that now the stage was set for the entire world to know, to discover the power and the nature of the one true living God. The Pharaoh says no. And Moses said, because of that, God is going to send plagues upon this entire nation. Pharaoh said, go ahead, give it a shot. Let's see, let's see what this God has. And, and this is so interesting. God sent these plagues that were directed exactly at each of the things that the Egyptians held sacred. They, they loved and they worshipped the Nile River. God said, I'll turn it into blood. They loved and they worshipped the sun. God said, I'll blot it out. They loved and worshipped certain gods that appeared as cattle. God said, I'll, I'll destroy all the cattle. They had this God that they worshipped that came to them in the appearance of a frog. So God said, you like frogs? I'm going to make it rain frogs up in here. I'm going to give you so many frogs. He sends bugs. He sends pestilence. I mean, everything that the Egyptians held near and dear, God made a complete mockery of. And in the process, the Egyptians began to come to the conclusion. The majority of them, they, they started going, this must be the true God. We're not sure about this Pharaoh guy anymore because what God's doing is unbelievable. The Hebrew God must be God. Here's what God said about why he sent the plagues. Exodus chapter 11, verse 9. And I'll just read this to you here. It says, The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. I'm going to send these plagues. Pharaoh's going to keep saying no. Each one's going to get worse and escalate to, to like the ultimate, like most horrible thing they could experience. And Pharaoh's going to keep saying no. And what God's saying is, in other words, I'm going to give Pharaoh the ability, the choice here to say no. His heart will be hardened to the point to where no matter what happens to his nation and to his people, he's just going to keep saying no. I mean, everybody else in Egypt is begging him. Just let him go. We'll carry on. What we're experiencing now is, is horrible. God said, I'm going to keep giving Pharaoh the choice to say to me, no. And I'll take advantage of his stubbornness. I'll take advantage of his hard heart so that the world will know and see my glory. They will, they will make my name and my wonders known to the whole world. So God's saying, I'm going I'm I'm to leverage Pharaoh's hard heart for my glory and pharaoh just continues to say no so god said i'm, I'm going to send one more plague this is the last one it says you destroyed all the firstborn sons of the people that i've called and i've loved i've built a promise upon so i'm going to destroy all the firstborn sons in all of egypt and the tenth plague was was the worst plague it was the angel of death and on this given night 
the angel of death would, would move through all the homes and the villages of Egypt, and every firstborn among men and animals would die. That's a big threat. It's a big plague to come, to come across a people. Pharaoh's like, just bring it. I'm still going to say no. And God said, here's the deal, though. Every firstborn son will die. But I'm going to make provision. I'm going to make provision for those who put their faith in me, who trust in my promises. I'm, I'm going to pass over those who trust in me. And, and he said this, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to merely pass over the, the good Israelites. I'm not going to merely pass over the, the good Egyptians. I'm not going to only visit the bad Israelites and Egyptians. It's not what I'm about as God. In this 10th plague, God revealed something about himself that was so amazing. God reveals his grace and his, his mercy and his holiness. And just as God had the attention of the most powerful man in the world and the most powerful nation in the world and the nation that he was to call up and raise up to be his own, he said to Moses, have the Hebrew families kill a spotless, pure lamb and take the blood of that lamb and, and paint the blood on the sides of the doors and across the top of the doors and, and paint it with so much blood that even the threshold, I mean, there'd be dripping blood around these doors and even the threshold would, would be filled with the blood of the lamb and then stay inside. Don't come out your door. And, and when the death angel moves through the villages in the towns of Egypt, those villages and towns inhabited by the Hebrews, when he sees the lamb's blood, he will pass over. Imagine that night. Here's how the scripture tells us it happened. Exodus 12, verse 12 says, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. And God, in, in this moment, because he has the world's attention, he foreshadows what would happen some 1,500 years later when Jesus would finally come to the rescue, come to the scene. And he foreshadowed the fact that his acceptance wouldn't be based on, on merely being good enough or being better or trying harder. His acceptance, he would accept those who would place themselves under the protection of the blood of the lamb. And in killing and sacrificing those lambs, it was a picture that one day that, that God would send the one and final sacrifice for sin. And in that moment, as slaves, they experienced the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness and the love of God in a way that had never been experienced before. And it, and it set the pace. And it painted the picture for what God would ultimately do for everyone in and through Jesus. But check this out. This is, this is huge for you to get today. You've got to understand this. 
at this point for, for the nation of Israel, there are zero rules. There's no rules. Okay? There was no law. There was no obey God. I mean, that made no sense to them. Don't disobey the law. They had no frame of reference for law or for rules. That wasn't terminology that they spoke. When God finally came on the scene, the first thing God did was to demonstrate his power. He said, you can trust me. Then God demonstrated his grace and his mercy. You can trust me. And then he did the most unusual of all things. When he led them out of Egypt, he provides this cloud for them to follow during the day and this pillar of fire by night. Not because they deserved it, not because they were righteous people, but because he had chosen them. And he delivered them as a picture of what he would do for all of us through Jesus. The Bible says that they left Egypt, that they they went through the Red Sea, that God destroyed the rest of the Egyptian army. And then God, through Moses, he he brings them to to Mount Sinai. They had this amazing camp out at the base of the mountain. There was fire and and clouds. There's trembling. There was something so unusual about this. God had stepped onto the scene and God was revealing himself really for the first time in such a new way in all of recorded human history. And here, there's this, this wonderful little verse that tells us something about the nature of God and the nature of our relationship with God, the nature of who we are. It's in Exodus 19. And I love this verse. It, it, says, it says that when they got there, when they arrived at the mountain, it says, The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. You know what that's a picture of? It's a picture of God desiring to dwell among his people, to have intimacy with his creation. And, and you've got to keep this straight. Not law-keeping people, okay? Not people that follow the law. Not righteous people. Not, not Boy Scouts. But, but the people who had simply put their faith in him and followed him out of Egypt. That God descended to the top of the mountain was to say, I desire to dwell with you. And then God invited Moses up to the top. And then Moses went up to the top. And, and that's when and, and where he gave Moses the law. Right? We, we've seen the movies. Right? We, we, this is how we remember Moses. Right? Always carrying around these big chunks of rock. Right? This is what we think of when we think of Charles, Charlton Heston and, and Moses. Right? Is that, is that his name? Right? So that's our picture of Moses. So God invites them up, and, and, then he, and he gives them the law. Now, now, don't miss this, okay? God gave Moses the law to give to a people that he had already redeemed for himself. God gives the law to Moses to give to a people that he had already rescued for himself. God gave Moses the law to a group of people that he had already identified with himself. God gave Moses the law to a group of people that he had already let out of slavery, freed from bondage, and saved. This is important. The law was not given as a means of getting into relationship with God. God gave the law to a group of people that were already in relationship 
with a God whose name they had just learned. And that's huge for us. You can't miss that. Say it again. God gave the law to a group of people he already knew. He didn't give it to a group of people in order for them to get into relationship with him. Now, most of us, if we're lucky, right, we could probably, I don't know, we could probably list like what, anywhere from one to five, six, seven of the Ten Commandments, right? We could probably quote them. Some of us, a couple of us might be able to get through all ten, right? But, but most of us, if we're honest, we could, we, could, we could get up to six, probably pretty. And then the rest of them, we just start making up. We're like, well, I think the, the, the ninth is thou shalt protect thy father and, and honor no one above him unless it beeth me thy sweet Lord, right? And I, I don't think that one made it down from the mountain, right? Or thou shalt not make up a name in vain, right? We're just starting making these things up, right? But, but some of us... Some of us have never actually read them from the Bible. So I, I just, I'm going to read you that this is like the preamble to the Ten Commandments. In other words, here's what God said before he gave them the commandments. This is huge. This is what he said before he gave them the commandments. Turn to Exodus 20, right? You, you've got to read this for yourself. Here's what he said before he gave them the commandments. Verse 1. And God spoke all of these words. He says, I am the Lord your God. So just, just think about that for a second. The people are like, what? I mean, we, we don't even really know what you're like yet. That, that's okay. But, but have you seen what we've done? It's okay. Yeah, but we don't even know the rules yet. Now, we love rules, don't we? Come on, church, we love rules. They're like, we don't even know the, we don't, are there rules? We don't know the rules yet. He's like, it's okay, I do. I am the Lord. And I am your God. Before he says anything to him, before he gives him any rules, he says, I am the Lord, your God. It's who I am. And before you keep even the first rule, before you know the first thou shalt and the first thou shant, I, the Lord, am your God. I've already redeemed you. You're already in. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. Wait, wait. Why'd you bring us out of Egypt? I mean, we weren't a good people while we were in Egypt. It's not the issue. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt because I've chosen you and I love you. And I've demonstrated grace and I've demonstrated mercy I am the Lord, your God, and I chose freely on my own to initiate a relationship with you, and I will deliver you out of slavery and bondage way before you did anything good, way before you knew the rules, and before you did anything, before you could do anything to make you think that you deserve it, I rescued you. I am the God who chose to accept you based on my goodness my holiness, not yours. Not because there was anything particularly acceptable about you. I am the Lord your God who chose to do something on your behalf. In spite of everything I know about you, and I want the world to know that that's the kind of God I am. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And then... And then 
the first commandment. Exodus 23. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's just ask you a question. You've just seen God bring down these like very terrifying, horrible plagues, yet very miraculous. Okay? There's ten of them. They're unbelievable. And then you saw God lead you through the desert in a cloud by day, in a pillar of fire by night. You've seen him part the sea. You've seen him demolish the, the entire Egyptian army, the most powerful army in all of the known world. He's fed you in the desert. He's brought you to Mount Sinai. And then God says, I don't want you to have any other gods before me. Don't have anything else before me. How many of us would go, yeah, mm, you know, okay, let me get back to you on that one. Let me weigh through my options right here. I mean, you're pretty good. We've seen some cool things, God. But let me just stop and see if there's anything else. Right? Thinking no way. When God says you'll have no other gods before me, our immediate response should be, okay. Right? Absolutely. We've seen, we've heard, you showed up, and, and we witnessed all the amazing things that you've done, how you've provided for us. There should be no pause. There should be no hesitation. There should be nothing for us to think about when God says you should have no other gods before me. Period. I mean, in light of what you've just done, God, for me, I wouldn't dream of having another God before you. Not because we're scared of you, not because we're afraid of what you might do, but simply because of what we've just seen and experienced, because of what you've just done for us, we wouldn't dream of having any other God before you. Now, now don't miss this, please. That's the pattern of relationship with God. That's what God set in stone years and years and years ago. And, and when, he, when he finally had everyone's attention, when he finally went public, I want you to know I'm a powerful God. And I'm a God that initiates relationship with my people. And I'm a God of boundaries. And I am a God of rules. I have them. But when you understand who I am on the mercy and the grace side of things, you will have no problem surrendering all things that I ask of you. Because, because who would do anything less in light of what I've done for you? That's the same God that in the New Testament that, that desires for us to fall in love and to surrender to him. It's the same God. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the God of Moses. It's the God of Israel. It's the God who says, understand my grace. Accept my provision. Experience my protection. Follow my leading. And then as you look into my law, you'll find comfort there. Follow me first. Believe in me first. Then see the laws and, and begin to obey them. God said, I'm going to give you the law. And the law is there to protect you. It's there so that you'll know how to treat people who bear the thumbprint of the image on their soul of the God who created them. The law is there so that you'll know how to conduct yourself as husbands and wives. The law is there so you'll know how to raise your kids. The law is there so you'll know how to worship me. The law is there so you'll understand me. And with the law, God said, by the way, you'll make mistakes, right? When you try to live up to the standard of the law, you'll fail. You'll make mistakes. And therefore, as a part of the law, I'm going to make provision. When you mess up, Let's not call it a mistake anymore. Let's call it what the Bible calls it. When you mess up, when you sin, there needs to be sacrifice. 
right? When you sin, sacrifice covers that. Every time there is a sin, at this point, with the law, with the system that they had, there must be the spilling of blood to atone and cover for your sin. And, and we usually respond with, God, we don't need sacrifice. Like, we'll just, here's what we'll do. How, how about, it's just a mistake. How about we just work a little bit harder? How about if we work a little bit harder to cover our mistakes? Like, we'll, we, we'll put it right this time. We'll, we'll fix it. We'll make it better. We'll keep the law this time, God. We don't need a sacrifice. We'll just give you a second chance. And God responds, responds with, no. No, you won't. Like, you'll try. And you'll promise. But I know you won't. So I'm going to go ahead and build in provision. So, so God's actually factoring in to the equation our sin, and our failure. Because the law represents a standard of holiness and righteousness that we can never attain. I did not accept you, Israel, because you could ever live up to the law. You'll, you'll never get it straight. I accepted you because I could. I accepted you because I'm good. I accepted you because I loved you and I wanted you. And so the law will do two things. It will be a constant reminder of our sinfulness and a constant reminder of God's holiness. And so with the law comes the provision. I'm factoring in the fact that you're going to fail. And there's going to be a sacrifice to cover your sin. Please don't, please don't miss this. The Ten Commandments, the law of God was never given as a means to get into relationship with God. It was given to a group of people who were already in relationship with God through his grace and his mercy and the sacrifice of Jesus. In fact, did you know that through the entire book of Exodus, where we find the law, there, there's, there's no mention of heaven and hell in that book. There's, there's no correlation between keeping the law and where a person spends eternity. None. It's, it's not there because it was never the issue in the first place. And it's never been the issue since. When God first revealed himself, there was power and grace and mercy and forgiveness. That's how it's been ever since. Simply because we're not mistakers. We need a second chance. Are you waking up? We're sinners. We need a Savior. I've heard it all before, haven't we? Some of us are like, man, I've heard that a lot. I don't know if I need to hear it again. And God's going like, I'm tired of telling you this. Every, every night around 7 o'clock in the Goodman household, it's, it's bedtime. Those of you that are parents of young kids, you get it. Here's the deal. You, you, I don't know what happens, right? So, so last night around 7 o'clock, it's time to put the kids to bed. We have three kids, eight, five, two and a half. Same thing, same routine every night, right? You got to brush your teeth, you got to put on some jammies, got to read a story. Um, if you're if you're Luke, you got to take some melatonin. We're gonna get that kid to bed, okay? It's gonna happen, and it's the same story every single night. It happens every night. Somehow, so this happened last night at seven o'clock. Somehow, in in like 24 hours, they're gonna forget it all. I don't know how. I don't know what's going on, but tonight we'll fight the same fight. It'll be the same battle 
to put those pajamas on those kids. And they'll be like, oh, I don't even know it's bedtime. You knew. It's the same thing every night. So in, in a 24-hour period, they'll just forget. And, and honestly, like, Jennifer and I were talking. We're driving home last night. We're like, oh, like, like pulling straws to see who has to do it tonight. Whose turn is it? And some are like, it's going to be, they're going to forget. We've got to do it all over again. And somehow I'm like, oh, I just get so tired of telling them every single night. And so think about how tired God gets of, of reminding us of this. You see, what happens for the nation of Israel is, is they go on. They get, they get past this story, right? And you get to the book of Leviticus, and there's like, I don't know, like 600-some laws, right? And then they write books on how to interpret those laws. And so they build this whole system out to try to attain righteousness and salvation through laws. God's like, no, 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 don't you remember? I already told you this. I'm kind of tired of telling you this. The law is not there to bring you to salvation. The law is there to point out that you need a savior. And they just go on for years and years and years, and they continue to live this out. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. Here's the sacrifice. It's once and for all. It never needs to happen again. And through his sacrifice on the cross, as he exchanges his, his righteousness takes our sin, dies in our place so we can have forgiveness, we can have eternity, we can have this abundant and full life, we can have mercy and grace and forgiveness through Jesus. And some of us are still just trying to be gooder, aren't we? Like, oh, if I can just, if I can find my acceptance in God and he can accept me based on how good I can be today, and we build laws for ourselves, don't we? We build rules for ourselves. We keep on trying to follow a list of rules to try to gain acceptance from God. But we've already found it in the person of Jesus. We've already got grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. And yet God still, for us, for so many of us, we still try to find it. You're just trying to be gooder or better. Right? We make a mistake. We're like, oh, give me a second chance. He's like, you don't need it because you're not a mistaker. He needs a second chance. You're a sinner that needs a Savior. And I've provided it for you once and for all in Jesus. It's a good story. I think it's a good reminder. I think we need it. Somehow in the next 24 hours, we're going to forget. And we're going to think that we can work our way back to God. We'll mess up. When what we really need to do is just say, God, I confess to you that I'm a sinner. God, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and you provided it through Jesus. And I thank you for that. Every, every year, the, the nation of Israel gathers together. And they remember. And they celebrate what God did for them while they were in slavery and bondage in Egypt and how he freed them and rescued them and delivered them and called them into relationship with him. It's called a Passover. And they eat this big, huge feast and there's all these cool pieces and all this really, really neat stuff when you get into it. Jesus, being a Jewish person, as he entered into Jerusalem at the time of Passover, he coming to the end of his life, he sat down with his friends and celebrated that Passover meal. Saw what was in front of him. Some bread in front of him. There was a goblet of wine in front of him. 
And he knew it was coming in the, in the next few days. Sitting with some of his just closest friends. And he grabbed a piece of bread and he grabbed that goblet of wine and he said, this bread, this bread's like my body, which is going to be broken for you. Which is going to give provision for you. Which is going to give freedom for you. And this cup is like my blood that is going to be spilt out. So when death comes to visit you, you'll pass over. You'll live forever in my sacrifice. What I'm about to go do is going to provide the ultimate provision for you. So he took that bread and he took that cup and said, as often as you get together, celebrate a meal with your closest friends, grab that piece of bread and grab this cup and remember me. Remember what I'm going to to do for you. Remember the acceptance, the provision, the relationship setting right that comes through this. And, and worship me. Because I'm the one and the final sacrifice. So today, as, as we go into a time of worship, as we go into a time of celebrating and remembering, when you go to those tables, Celebrate, and, and, and it's, it's an opportunity for you to remember, to take that bread, to take that cup, to thank God what he has done for us through Jesus. Thank him that we don't have to work for it. We can't. We don't have to try to accomplish it. He did for us. So here's what we're going to do. The worship team's going to make their way back up here. I'm going to pray. And then during this time of worship, it's an opportunity for you to respond to how God has revealed to partake in communion together. So how we do it here today is you're going to have the opportunity to walk up to the tables and, and grab communion. If you want to stay around the table and take it, if you need to go back to your seat, if you want to find a, a place somewhere in the room, that's great. If you want to do it as a family, if you need to do it as an individual just make sure that as you approach it, you're remembering. Your heart's in the right place. You're saying, God, thank you. I want to remember you. I want to remember what you accomplished through Jesus. So take that bread, his body, which was broken for you. Take that cup, his blood that was spilled out for you, for provision, for acceptance, for forgiveness. So as we, as we worship today, let's, let's worship the God who made himself known. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today, and we thank you for this old, old story that is true, that, that happened. It's a story that we're all too familiar with. We've heard a lot. And it's a story that we need to keep hearing, because it reminds us of what you provided for us through Jesus, once and for all never to be paid again, paid in full through Christ on the cross, that final sacrifice, blood spilled out for us, righteousness given to us so that we could be put into a right relationship with you. Father, we thank you. We praise you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.